chapter 20. I invite you to stand with me as we read God's word together. To the choir master, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt offerings. Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word this morning. I know that what we're about to do is only scratch the surface of the glories that we see here in Psalm 20. But would you... Fill our hearts with your truth, with affections for you, Lord. Would you do a great work among us and in us? Would you be exalted in this place, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So Psalm 20, the main idea this morning is that our trust rests in the Lord alone who saves Our trust rests in the Lord alone who saves. So Psalm 20, just to give kind of a background and and put it in context, it begins really a beautiful royal road highlighting God's king. Psalm 20, we see anticipation of victory for God's king. Then we shift gears in Psalm 21, so you need to come back next week. It won't be me, it'll be Pastor Stephen, I think. Uh, where we see actual victory for God's king. And then in Psalm 22 to 24, we see some characteristics of God's king. We see the suffering king in Psalm 22, the shepherd king in Psalm 23, and then ultimately we reach a climax, we reach the pinnacle of the sovereign king of glory in Psalm 24. So Psalm 20, where we find ourselves this morning, how do we interpret Psalm 20. Well, Psalm 20 is a prayer for the king. It's what this is. It's a prayer on behalf of God's people for the king. But the difficulty arises with this psalm, and that is it's a psalm of David. Meaning that David, the king, wrote this prayer to be prayed for the king. So, the question that I think we've got to ask, and I've asked... Is this a prayer for David the king or another king? Perhaps a future king? And the short answer to that, those, those questions is yes. It's both. This is a prayer for the king of Israel who sits enthroned right then as God's anointed king, David. But this is also a prayer for the coming king of glory. We... 
The Old Testament saints would have read this psalm, would have prayed this prayer, only seeing maybe act one, act two of the whole play of God's narrative of redemption. But we read this psalm having seen just about all the acts, except for the final act where Jesus comes back. We have to zoom out and read this psalm, not only in the context of the psalms, but in the context of the entire Bible. And take into account passages like Luke 24, where Jesus tells us that the whole Bible is about Jesus. That everything in the Old Testament, Moses The prophets, the Psalms are pointing us ultimately to the true king, the king of glory, Jesus, who would come later. So this psalm, just so there's clarity as we move forward, I am interpreting and explaining this prayer as a prayer for, yes, the king who occupied the throne then, a.k.a. David, but also the king who occupies the throne now a.k.a. the son of David, who came from the line of David, the son of God, Jesus Christ. So there's going to be a back and forth. Yes, David, it's true of David, but yes, it's more fully true and more beautifully true in Jesus our Lord. So first section that I want us to look at is a hopeful prayer for victory in verses one through five. A hopeful prayer for victory. So get this image in your mind as we come to these first five verses. The image of a king about to go off to war. And the following verses are the cries of his people to the Lord on his behalf. The troops are rallied together. They're prepared to follow their king into battle. And these are the prayers of God's people for their king as he rides off into battle. And the first prayer that we see is a prayer for protection in verses 1 and 2. David writes, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. Now, four things I want us to notice about this prayer for protection. First one is that the Lord actively listens and actually acts. That's a lot of A's, so I'm going to say it again. The Lord actively listens and actually acts. That word there, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. It could be translated hear or answer. But the idea, the sense here is that the Lord not only hears The prayers of his people. But he hears in such a way that he responds and acts. And that is the prayer here. Lord, not only hear us. Don't don't just listen. But answer us and save the king in the day of trouble. If you think about trouble. The day of trouble. Think about David's life. David's life was marked by trouble. Few people in this room have probably experienced the kind of trouble that David experienced. Just think about David as the anointed king. God anointed him as his king, but he doesn't yet sit on the throne. Early on in his life, Saul still sat on the throne. And a good many days of David's life was spent running from Saul, fearing for his life. David, the anointed king, running from the king who God had removed his favor from. Fearing for his life. Later on in David's kingship, his own son rebels against him and tries to take the kingdom from him. David, his own son, abandons him, turns against him, would rather have him dead. David experienced a great deal of trouble. 
Not only Saul and Absalom, but you see, we would understand that David spent much of his time with his men in war, in battle, seeing and experiencing horrendous things and horrible trouble. God saved the king in the day of trouble. But if we fast forward and we consider the life of Jesus, Jesus' life was marked by trouble. Jesus did not have an easy life. If we fast forward just a little bit in the Old Testament to the book of Isaiah chapter 53, this is, this is the Old Testament telling us about the life of Jesus, the coming King. Isaiah 53, I'm just going to read a few verses, 3, 5, and then 7 through 9. Just listen to what Jesus' life was like. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed, down in verse 7, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away of my people. His generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. We see a life marked by trouble. We read that and think, I don't want that life. That's not the life for me. But that's the life that Jesus himself lived. God's own king, the king of glory, lived that life. And what we see in this prayer, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. God is not a God who keeps trouble from coming into his people's life. It's This is why I hate the prosperity gospel. That is not the case with God. God, though, however, is a God who protects in the midst of and is purposeful in spite of our troubles. God was always faithful to David. And every bit of trouble that David experienced was purposeful. God is always, the Father was always faithful to Jesus. And every bit of trouble that Jesus faced, you better believe it was purposeful. He was wounded for our transgressions. God is faithful in the day of trouble. The Lord actively listens and actually acts in the day of trouble. The second thing I want us to notice about this prayer for protection is that David appeals not to his own goodness, but God's covenant keeping reputation. David appeals not to his own goodness, but God's covenant-keeping reputation. He says, may the name of the God of Jacob protect you. That is a packed title that he uses to plead before God. The name of the God of Jacob. The name here, this is God's revealed self. This is the way in which God has revealed himself. His name and his character. The God of Jacob, he has that title on In other words, this is the God of the covenant. God's covenant-keeping reputation. David is basically praying, God, you have kept your covenant up to this point. And I trust that you will continue to keep it in this matter. In what we are praying for right now. We have no reason whatsoever to doubt you, 
Because your, your reputation has been nothing but faithful. You have kept your word. You have kept your covenant. And that is what David's appeal to is God's covenant keeping reputation. The third thing I want us to see about this prayer for protection is that David understands God's limitless provisions and all satisfying presence. In verse 2. The prayer for the king is, may he, God, send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. Now, this has never happened to anybody in this room. You, your AT&T bill goes up and you're like, what? What is this? And so you call and you spend about an hour, press, press one for more options, press two. And you, it takes a while. Then you finally get an actual person and that person is always helpful, right? If you work for AT&T, I'm sorry. This is not a bash against you. Any company. No, you rarely do we get a hold of a person that's helpful. I'm sorry, I can't help you. I can't help you with that. I, can I speak to your manager? Can I speak to your manager? And up and up and up and up we go until we can talk to somebody who can actually make a decision. Who can actually provide some help. We'll go all the way up to the CEO if we have to. And that's what David is doing here. I'm going all the way up to the CEO. I'm going all the way up to the God of the universe who possesses unlimited resources. There is nothing that God cannot do. May He, the God of the universe, send you help from His sanctuary, from Zion. This represents His presence. The implication here is that yes, God has unlimited resources and he is calling for his help. But the tie with the sanctuary in Zion, may he send you help from there. David is saying what is the best help is God's very presence. The presence of God himself. The best help one could ever receive is knowing that God is there. If you remember back in Exodus chapter 3, I love this interaction between Moses and God. Moses is, has fled Egypt. He's scared to death. And God deals with Moses. He communes with Moses and he says, All right, Moses, I want you, just an individual dude, to go to Egypt, the world's superpower, and I want you to lead my scrawny people who are slaves out. And Moses, like every single one of us, is like, you want me to do what? Like, you giving me that job description? Who in the world am I to lead these people out of Egypt? Like, God's only response is, I'll be with you. That is so good. That puts us on our knees like, any challenge, any but that we could throw up to God and God's just like, I'll be with you. Nothing is a match for the very presence of God. God is saying to Moses, God is saying to his king, the only help that you need, and David realizes this, is God himself. If God is there, there is nothing to fear at all. And they're praying this for their king, God be with him. God be with the king. 
The fourth thing I want us to see about this prayer for protection is that this is ultimately a prayer for the protection of God's covenant. It's ultimately a prayer for the protection of God's covenant. Temporary protection for the king may have meant temporary protection for the people. But protection of the covenant means eternal protection for God's people. I love that. I think David is joining in this prayer. It's not simply the congregation praying for David. I think David is joining in with the congregation and praying. Protect your covenant. Even if I drop God. Even if I fall dead in battle, protect your covenant. Protect your anointed. Be faithful. That's what David is saying here. The covenant will stand regardless of whether I drop or not. So the first prayer we see is a prayer for protection. The second one we see is a prayer for acceptance. Verse 3 Congregation prays, may he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Now, if we read this in the immediate context. This is applying to David, King David. Then we at least see that David understands the need for atonement here. David is godly. David, David sees that he's not perfect, that he is a sinner and he needs the atonement of God and he, he makes sacrifice, that there is no victory in battle apart from the favor of God. But if we zoom out, this is where this verse is really, really cool. If we zoom out and we consider this in the grand story of God here, our eyes have to be directed to the cross. Our eyes have to be. This is a prayer pleading that the Father would remember and accept Jesus' body broken for me and Jesus' blood shed for me. That word burnt sacrifices there could literally mean flesh sacrifices. Sacrifice of flesh or a meat offering. We know that Jesus is ultimately the only king who didn't bring a lamb to be sacrificed, but brought himself as the lamb to be sacrificed. And we pray on this side of the cross, Lord, remember your sacrifice. Remember Jesus who laid down his life for me. He's our king. We pray for that acceptance as the Old Testament saints prayed for that acceptance. Verse 4, we see a prayer for fulfilled plans. Fulfilled plans. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. I, I think this is an interesting prayer to pray for the, the king of Israel. I think about this and set aside your political beliefs, but they're praying for their political leader. Fulfill all his plans. Give him everything his heart desires. I'm going to be honest. I don't know if I'd pray that for Donald Trump or any political leader for that matter. I wouldn't pray it for me. Now, at least David, God says of David in 1 Samuel 13 that he is a man after my own heart. David appears to be a godly leader with good character and pure motives. But ultimately, we can only pray this prayer. And David, I would agree, we can only pray this prayer for the king that's coming. The king that would be perfect Jesus, the king who in Hebrews four tells us was without sin, totally different than all the other kings. 
Who in John 1.14 we see that Jesus the King is full of grace and truth. John 8.29 Jesus tells us that his whole life Jesus always did that which was pleasing to the Father. That is true of no other king and no other person. It's not true of me. But Jesus' entire life, Jesus tells us this, was marked by always doing that which is pleasing to the Father. And in 1 Peter 2.22, Peter writes that Jesus, there was no deceit found in his mouth. Jesus is the only totally perfect king where we can say, fulfill all of his plans. Do everything that he desires. It's a prayer for acceptance and a prayer for fulfilled plans. And the last prayer we see in this section is a prayer for final victory. In verse 5, may we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. We're starting to transition, not, not just a hopeful prayer for, but increasing anticipation of victory. Notice that this is not simply a prayer hoping for victory, rather anticipating and expecting a victory. They go on to say, in the name of our God, set up our banners. In other words, it's as if they are telling the king, we're going to go ahead and set up for the victory party right now. Like we are confident that the Lord will save, that the Lord will grant victory. You go win. We're going to go ahead and have the party ready right now. We're ready to go. They are praying, but anticipating and hoping for final victory for the king. We know on this side of the cross that victory does belong to the king. Victory does belong to Jesus. And we get in on that joy and we can shout for joy of his salvation today. Let's transition and look at the second section where we see unwavering assurance of victory. The anticipation builds throughout the psalm and then it switches gears in six where we see pretty full assurance that God will grant victory. In verse six, we see sure salvation. David is convinced of sure salvation. David, it changes here. Now I know. Earlier it's it seemed as if they were praying, the congregation was praying on behalf of the king. Now the king speaks. Now I know, David is saying, I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. David, as if he hasn't already, joined the congregation with a spirit of assurance. David does not simply hope that the Lord will save. He knows that the Lord will save his anointed. He knows that. How does David know that? If you look with me in 2 Samuel. Chapter 7. We see the amazing promise of God to David. 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 12 through 16. God interacts with David. And God tells him. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. In other words, when you die, David. The covenant's not over. I will raise up your offspring after you. 
who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. You keep reading. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And in verse 16, we see again, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Ultimately, David knows that the Lord saves his anointed because God has promised David the anointed earlier in 2 Samuel 7. Your kingdom will go forever. You're going to have a son. David doesn't know who that son's going to be. He doesn't know when that son's coming. But he knows he's going to have one. He knows that somebody's coming from his line that the Lord will establish forever and ever. And so David pauses in verse 6 to say, I know the Lord saves his anointed. I know the Lord's faithful. And then he reminds himself and his people of this truthful realization in verse 7 and 8. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. I wonder why David includes this in here. These are probably the more famous verses in this psalm, but I wonder why David throws this in here. I think it's because we as people, whether we're God's people or not, we as people are prone to thinking that the world has a better plan than God does. That the world just, it just looks fancier. The world looks like it's just flashier and more attractive. And God just, what are you doing, God? Are you even, are you doing anything? The fact that someone would walk into a Jewish synagogue and shoot things up yesterday. is tragic and we should pray for our Jewish friends. What are you even doing, God? And we're tempted to place our hope in things that we can see. Tangible things. Because we can, we're tangible people. So David throws this in because he knows the temptation that we have to fall for flashy, attractive, powerful things. But David would remind his people and David would remind us that when the world trusts in their powerful political leaders who cannot keep their promises, we trust the Lord who will never break his. When the world trusts in their nuclear weapons which could destroy all of us in a moment, we trust the Lord who upholds the universe by the word of his power and won't let anything come between us and him. When the world trusts in their health, which is fleeting, we trust the Lord who gives us the only healing that lasts. When the world trusts in their prosperity, which only fuels greedy hearts, we trust the Lord who grants eternal prosperity with a righteousness that is not ours. When the world trusts in themselves, which cannot ultimately satisfy, we trust the Lord who alone satisfies to the depths of who we are. I want to go back and replace that phrase, when the world trusts in. Because I think if we're honest with ourselves, we could say, when I trust in. When I'm tempted to trust in political leaders. When I'm tempted to trust in military power. When I'm tempted to trust in my health. When I'm tempted to trust in my bank account. When I'm tempted to trust in my own self. We must remind ourselves 
that those who trust in the things of this world, though they be flashy, attractive, and powerful, will collapse and fall. That is the guarantee. But those who trust in the Lord will rise and stand upright. The psalmist in Psalm 73, this is, different. This is not David. I love Psalm 73. It's my favorite psalm in the whole book of Psalms. The psalmist Asaph here, who was most likely uh, David's choir director, musician, chief musician. He is working through this very dilemma. It seems like God, those who trust in chariots and horses, it seems like they're doing pretty good. And it seems like us who are trusting in you, Lord, are doing pretty bad. In fact, it seems like the wicked are prospering. And you told us earlier in Psalm 1 that the righteous prosper. And you said the wicked will suffer. The wicked will face judgment. That's the dilemma in Psalm 73. And then the psalmist is dealing with God in this. And he gets to verse 16 and he says, But when I thought how to understand this, this is confusing to me. It seemed to me a wearisome task. Just pause right there. It is okay to be confused as a Christian and to have questions and run to God because he is faithful. He is we can be honest with him. And that's what the psalmist is. And then God helps the psalmist. He meets him where he is. And he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, until I sought the Lord, then I discerned their end. This is the end of those who trust in chariots and horses. You set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. And then the psalmist writes some of the most beautiful words in the entire Bible. Here's what he realizes. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The psalmist realizes what we need to realize is that God is all we need. The Lord is all that we need. His presence is sufficient. Though they may trust in flashy, attractive, tangible, powerful things, the world. Ultimately, all those things will rot and rust and fade. But the Lord never will. And the psalmist is like, all I need is you, God. You are enough. And no matter what this world looks like around me, I trust you. I trust that you are at work. I trust that you are fulfilling all of your plans. Back in Psalm 20, we see one final plea before we make application. One final plea in verse 9. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Now, I think this is really interesting here. Verse 9 is a plea to the Lord and the king. O Lord, save the king. 
May he answer us when we call. Charles Spurgeon said that this is the twofold desire of this psalm. That Jesus himself might be delivered. And then might as our king hear us and deliver us. Just on a practical note. I love the honesty of how this psalm ends. You have hopeful prayer for victory. You have assurance of victory. But then one more time. Oh Lord save the king. This, this one more plea. It's almost like the, the man who cries out to Jesus. I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe that you will keep your covenant God. Please keep your covenant. Just an honest prayer. As we wrap up the psalm, I just want to walk away with two takeaways. Two so what application points. First is this. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It is initiated by our covenant keeping God and it is kept by our covenant keeping God. I think verse 6 would have brought David tremendous comfort Think about David as he's about to go off to war. The fears that are probably filling up his heart and in his mind. Will he ever see his family again? What will happen to the kingdom if he dies? And he thinks, now I know though that the Lord saves his anointed. God is faithful. No matter what is about to happen to me, God will save his anointed. God will keep his covenant. Ultimately, the Lord's salvation is not given to David because of David. And it's not kept or lost because of David. The Lord's salvation is given and kept because the Lord himself earned it. The Lord's salvation is not given to you and me because of you and me. It's because Jesus earned it in our place. Jesus, the anointed one, earned the salvation that you and I are unworthy to have. But Jesus, the anointed one, took on the curse that you and I deserve to bear. That's how he earns it. Salvation is his to give and it's his to keep. And regardless of our performance, he will not take it away. Why? Because he's given it to the king. He has given it to his king, Jesus, the anointed one, our king. Second takeaway. We must walk with unwavering assurance in Jesus, our Lord. And the reason why we must do this is because Jesus's victory is our victory. I think. Why would the people of Israel pray for the salvation of their king? As he goes off to battle. Obviously they care about the guy, maybe. But it's deeper than that. David is on some level, he is Israel. If David falls, Israel falls. If the king falls, Israel falls. The nation falls. If Jesus falls, we fall. If Jesus is not victorious, we are not victorious. God's not changing plans. But if Jesus is victorious, those united to him by faith 
are victorious. We get to share in His victory. We get grafted into the family of God simply because our King won the victory that we could never win. This is so good. We know the certain victory of the Lord's anointed. Jesus' victory is our victory. Therefore, we must walk with Him in, with unwavering assurance. God has demonstrated nothing but faithfulness throughout all of redemptive history. God has kept His covenant. God does not go back on His word. God does not go back on you, believer. God does not go back on us, church. Because God cannot go back on His Son. Salvation belongs to Him. Jesus earned what we could not earn. And He gives it to us freely by faith. So let us, let us walk and trust our King today as we go. Let's pray. Father, it is amazing that something...